You're listening to Creative Confidential with Brian Tuck. Brian is a social entrepreneur and attorney who focuses on startup companies, nonprofit organizations, and arts and entertainment law issues. Creative Confidential starts now. Today, we are very lucky to be joined by writer David Kane, the author of Raptitude.com. David, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Brian. Um, people that know me or that are connected to me through social media know that I have shared your posts uh, many times over the last uh, several years, and I've I've been one of your readers for uh, probably going back to 2011 or, or 2012. A friend of mine had forwarded some of your, your work to me, and um, it really just provided such a unique uh, viewpoint on things. And you express opinions about work-life balance and what's truly important, and you present it in a way that's totally unique. And I was wondering if you could perhaps introduce my listeners to what Raptitude.com is all about. Yeah, basically on Raptitude, I write about the human experience and human well-being. So what it's like to be a human being in modern society, and that's pretty broad topic. You know, there's a ton of aspects to that, like work-life balance is one of them. Um, basic self-improvement things, you know, forming habits, that kind of thing. Also just reflecting on how weird it is to be a human being in the age of the internet and the age of space travel, you know, kind of zooming out and looking at um, where we are in history, things like that. So I basically write whatever I feel like on that very broad topic of the human experience. And I think I saw you refer to yourself as, you know, bringing philosophy down to the street level, which I think is a great, uh, a very apt description of, of, of what you do. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, the tagline or not the tagline, but the description under my picture, the sidebar description of the blog is a, a street level look at the human experience. So kind of just looking at how we live often quite zoomed in, you know, like our subjective experience, what is going on in our minds, what's going on in our thoughts. So yeah, that I guess philosophy is a word that, that, uh, you know, in a general sense does cover what I'm talking about. Yeah. When did you start the blog? I started it in, I, I launched it 2009, March 15th, 2009. So suddenly that's seven years ago. It, it really seems more recent than that when I think about it. But um, in the end of 2008, I was at work uh, in an office. I worked as a um, surveyor and engineering tech. So I did a lot of drafting and a lot of surveying field work. And it was just kind of slow. And I was, you know, surfing the internet a lot of the time. And I came across ProBlogger, which you probably know is a blog about blogging. And it got me thinking about blogging. And then, you know, over the next couple of months until the launch in 2009, I was thinking about how I'm going to do this, how I'm going to make a blog, because it just sounded pretty neat. Um, I guess it was the I didn't even know what blogs were like I'd been to them. I didn't know, you know, how you define a blog, but what I liked about it was that I discovered there's a community around every conceivable topic out there of blogs. And some of them are tiny little blogs that one or two people read. And some are huge ones that millions of people read. And I wanted to be a part of that. 
did you let's let's go maybe back a little bit in time to uh you know pre 2009 was writing something that you did as as uh as a hobby or were you always interested in writing how did that evolve i was always interested in writing in grade school whenever we would have an assignment to write a story or or anything like that i just loved it like it was one of the few kinds of schoolwork that i loved Mm -hmm. um but i kind of got away from it as i became a teenager and then when i was in my early 20s when i was in college studying surveying um i life was getting kind of rough i wasn't enjoying school it was tough and so i started i noticed i just started writing again i started writing terrible fiction you know false starts to novels that kind of thing but it's something that has always kind of drawn me um so yeah it was always there yeah and the idea of blogging you know i I just assumed that the writing part would come naturally to me and it was hard at first but but it's always yeah it's always been on my mind always something i've been interested in when you were in college your your course of study then was engineering or in the sciences well, at the time, I was I went to a, I guess you call it a community college or a polytech to study computer programming first, and I just got completely overwhelmed there. Like I, I found I kind of coasted through school. Like I found grade school really easily, and then I got to studying computer programming and really had a hard time. I didn't know how to ask for help or study or anything like that. So I had two years of that and basically limped to a late graduation quit, moved out west to a ski resort, came back and started again in engineering, taking, like, I wasn't going for a professional engineer, but I was going for an engineering tech. So I'd be basically the right-hand man of an engineer. Mm -hmm. And so it was during that second round of school, I really got, I started working in the industry and Raptitude came later. But uh, it was the first round of school where I started writing again. And that time it would have been about 20 to 22 so as you have you know said there is a community around any issue and and many people start on blogger or wordpress or 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 tumblr now or whatever it may be and there's so much content on the internet it's blinding i mean you it's tough to know where to go sometimes unless you're relying on you know the recommendation of a friend or some kind of opinion maker um, or, you know, it, it appears in, in Rolling Stone or Huff, you know, Huffington Post or something like that. Um, did you have any idea when you started Raptitude what you were getting into? Um, well, I didn't know exactly how it would be, like what it would feel like to be a blogger and eventually to be making a living doing that. But at the time I had a you know, I was reading a ton of blogs and reading a, a blogs about blogging because I was so interested in it mm-hmm. that, um, yeah, I got a pretty good sense of, of what it would be like because I was reading all these little blogs and they were all pointing to each other saying, you know, so-and-so and this blog is talking about that. And so I was kind of really diving into the community that I was interested in, which at the time was self-improvement and human experience and the kind of things that I, I write about now. Um, and so I thought like, as soon as I saw that, I really thought I'm kind of, I don't, I don't believe in destiny, but I kind of felt like I am totally heading in this direction. I, I really want to be a part of that community. 
Now, when you got started with, with Raptitude, you were still working full-time? Yeah. Um, I was working full-time. I'm trying to think of how the timeline worked. When I started it, I had a full-time job. Uh, within a year of that, I quit that job because I was just – I wasn't happy and decided to go backpacking for better part of a year. I think it was nine or ten months that I was gone. Uh, I was running the blog the whole time during then. And then when I got back, I had no money and I had to get another job. So I got another job and worked for another three, three and a half years before I finally had saved up enough to quit, you know, with, with confidence that I could build a business around it. Um, and at the time that I quit, I, I had just saved a bunch of money and I kind of had a plan. I had an established audience, but I didn't really have much of an income from the blog. So it was a bit of a leap, but I, I knew that I'd, I'd be able to pull it off probably. Well, and that leap that you describe is is a is a is a crucial situation, and you know, taking it out in a, in a sort of an abstract way. You know, there's lots of people that I think you know we both know in our just in our personal circles that may be in a job that they didn't, you know, they wouldn't have chosen. If they, you know, knew now what they knew when they got out of high school or got out of out of college and, and life has a way of taking over and circumstance has a way of taking over. And before you know it, you're you know, you're in a job for five or ten years and you really wanted to be a playwright or you really wanted to be, um, you know, work in film or, or television or, you know, a camera operator or something like that. A lot of people spend a lot of energy on that leap. You know, how, how can I make that leap? How do I, how do I do it? Um, in your, in your particular case, so you had, at the time you decided to pursue writing full time, you could tell what your traffic was on the website. How many unique visitors a month were you attracting? At that time, probably about 150,000 or 200,000. So it was a, a significant audience. And I knew that, like, I was, I was very interested in numbers, mm -hmm. you know, what I would need to, how I could actually make it work, because it does depend on numbers. Um, and I knew that there were a lot of people, a lot of bloggers who had less traffic than that, who were making full-time livings, and in some cases, substantially less traffic than that. So taking the leap it I was confident in my ability to do that mainly because I knew I had the audience and that's the hardest thing to get and you know I had the if someone else could make it work with those numbers or half those numbers or a quarter then I, I could definitely do it even though I, I've never been a particularly skilled achiever of goals or you know I'm not a go-getter I'm not I'm not the like type a productivity whiz at all I'm I'm like that's really tough for me, but I knew I had that. I had the audience and that was the hardest part. See, that surprises me when you say you're not a type A because to build what you have built is not easy. I mean, many have tried and not, you know, not gotten, gotten there be for a lot of reasons, whether it's, you know, I think a lot of people just lose steam when they realize how much energy they have to apply, um, to, to a goal like that. Um, in terms of building an audience, was it all word of mouth? Was it all sort of grassroots 
you know, friends sharing the site with other friends? Was or was there a marketing campaign? How how did you build the audience? Well, mostly through people just sharing the stuff that I wrote. And I think I mean, I don't think it was brilliant, but it was good enough for people to share. Uh, I didn't do at the beginning, I did do some um, some of that real like elbow grease kind of stuff where you go to other blogs and comment on blogs and then you get two or three people from there and you comment in forums and your signature links back and that kind of thing. Um, I don't like 2009 was a long time ago. Maybe people don't do that anymore, but at the time that was kind of the, the way to get some kind of audience for your blog that when you started, nobody reads it except you and your mom. Right. So you get your first 20 (laughs) people, 50 people, family, family members and things. Yeah. And they start sharing it. So, but mainly since that early phase where I was, you know, commenting and doing that kind of traffic generation, I haven't really done any promotion other than just, you know, writing stuff that I think people will want to share. But I, I, I should say that at an essential piece that I had was taking a blogging course, um, Brett that had step-by-step how to build an audience, how to do that kind of thing. Because without that, like you were saying earlier, there's so much information on the internet that you could go a thousand different ways and never get anywhere. So I kind of, I had a roadmap in the form of an actual blogging course that, that seemed to work (laughs) evidently. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, it's, it's amazing to me how many people with, with the way social media has transformed our landscape where anybody can try to build a personal brand around themselves, whether it's a, whether you're in the creative world or whether, um, you know, closer to what I do, which is more sort of in the consulting coaching space. Um, you know, you can upload video direct to Facebook or YouTube or Twitter or wherever there, you know, the means of production are, are very much in everyone's hands. And for the most part, uh, people can self-produce video or self-produce audio that that sounds and looks, you know, pretty good. But that's not enough. I mean, you have to be able to connect with people. I, I know for me, I'm going to ask you a question about what the tipping point was, but I know as one of your readers, um, you know, without going into too much detail in the weeds, you know, 2011, 2012, I was going through some hard, difficult stuff on a, on a personal level. And a friend of mine said, well, you should read David Kane. He's, you know, he's has a, a way of, of kind of bringing you back to the center and, you know, a way of kind of, um, focusing on the present instead of all these other problems, you know, in the whole. And I think the piece that I read, which got me hooked was, uh, this will never happen again. Uh-huh. And, you know, the thing I took away from that is no matter, you know, no matter how difficult a circumstance you're in, you know, tomorrow will be different than today. And whatever just happened cannot repeat itself. It's not possible for it to repeat itself. So don't worry so much. And I'm this is a gross paraphrasing. And I'm going to link to this in the show notes uh, on your episode but I was I was wondering maybe if you could expound on that concept a little bit. Yeah, um, this is something like on a more general point. Um, the things I write about are 
mostly responses to my own problems. And so when people read them and say that, wow, this really helped me, it's probably because it helped me too. Um, and one of those concepts is this idea that we're, we, I, I don't know about you, but I worry about the future a lot. And I think a ton of people do, but what we're worried about is things that happened in the past happening again, like certain kinds of pain and certain kinds of difficult experiences and feelings of powerlessness. We're just worried that that will happen again. So our fear is kind of like, we, we have so much faith that the things that we're afraid of can actually happen. Yet we can, we don't know what's going to happen. We're not psychic. So our fears never actually come true. Like anyway, it's, it's difficult to explain without using the written word because mm -hmm. you know, when you're talking live, you tend to talk in circles, but I, it, it became so clear to me that my fears were of the past and they were not of the future. And I should just have, just to have a little bit more faith that things will unfold in a, a less predictable way than you think. And that that's kind of good because the things that it, the exact thing you fear is not going to happen. It's going to be a little bit different than that. And in the case of a pessimist like myself, it's probably going to be a lot better than I expected it to be. I would never have pegged you for a pessimist. <laughs> oh, totally. <laughs> really? That's again, yeah. that's, I mean, I, I would think the opposite because so much of your writing seems to me, or at least my perception of it is, uh, you know, very optimistic, very, um, you know, very much what you were alluding to, which was, you know, the imagined circumstances of what you're afraid of generally are worse than what is actually going to happen or, yeah. or may never sorry. happen. Sorry to step on you there. No, that's but okay. yeah, like it was a big revelation to me to realize I was a pessimist. Like I was, I actually wrote a blog post about this when I realized it and I was 30 years old. I had always thought like I wanted to be an optimist. I wanted to be the person who expects things to go well, but I had to look at, you know, I'm constantly looking at the potential downsides of everything. Like those are just, you know, my conditioning, whatever it is, those are just the kind of thoughts that are prominent in my mind. And that's shifted a little bit towards optimism. Um, but I'm still really like a pessimist. And I, and I don't mean I like negativity or anything like that. It's just, those are the thoughts that tend to get stuck in my mind. So someone could be a pessimist and not realize it. That's, that's what happened to me. So my writing is often challenging that challenging those conditioned thoughts, you know, challenging this, these expectations I constantly have of things that things will go wrong. So they would come off as, as being more optimistic because when I write, I can have a kind of a clearer thought about my thoughts. Do you know what I mean? I know I do. I know exactly what you mean. And, and when I, so I subscribe, so what everyone should do right now, if you're listening to this and are intrigued, go go to raptitude.com and then enter your email address. There's a sign up uh, window, I think, on the right hand side where you can uh, sign up for the email list. And then periodically you'll get um, email updates from, I guess, when you update the blog, it'll go out to your email list, right? Yeah. So, I mean, for me, and I know for a couple other readers of yours that I know, that all, for some reason, we all tend to be freelancers. You know, I work for myself and a couple other friends of mine uh, also, you know, work for themselves. And you, you feel a little bit like you're at sea 
sometimes. And I know, at least in my personal case, you know, when I when I see one of the emails come through, it's like a lifeline. Like, I don't know what it's going to be, but I want to open it immediately and see, you know, see what uh, what the next update has been. So, um, you know, going going back to something I, I meant to circle back to this. So when you were building your audience. Was there a tipping point? Was there a particular post or a particular period of time when the audience went from a thousand, say, to fifty thousand, or was there a sort of a precipitous incline, or was it a very steady um, enlargement of the audience? How did that evolve? It was kind of like I would get like the first breakthrough is I remember watching my stats, and there would be every hour there's like zero visitors, zero visitors, one visitor, which was me. And then another one, which was like my mom and then zero and zero. And then one day there was four people and I didn't know who two of them were. So that seemed like a huge breakthrough, a huge tipping point. And then, you know, a couple of weeks later, there was one where someone linked to me and that seemed like a huge tipping point. Like suddenly my audience went from seven people to 18 people. And so at the time it seemed like, okay, this is it. This is the big break of someone linked to me now or this post went viral and it, they all seemed like a big tipping point, but there was like 25 of those, you, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Where it jumps you up to the next, like often there'd be an explosion of traffic and then it would wear off after a while and there would be a new normal, a new, you know, you get a lot more subscribers and a new regular traffic day. So it's hard to just identify one of those as a big one. There were a few posts that just went super viral, went crazy. Um, but any, not, any, in not per- like, a, like the, the big break, no, any in particular, um, there was one I wrote a long time ago called 88 important truths I've learned about life. And it was just a bunch of like off the cuff aphorisms. It was kind of a throwaway, but people, especially at the time really like lists and they like big lists and it just went nuts. Like. Normally I'd have, um, I can't even remember the numbers at the time, but basically that post had like a thousand times the attention of my best post before that. But that doesn't change everything in the blog. It just, you know, more people have heard of you. Um, another list post I had about, there were just quotes from Nietzsche. I wouldn't even write something like that these days, just a bunch of quotes, but people love that. You know, over time you notice certain kinds of posts, people yeah. sort of move on from them and things that worked once don't work anymore. But there's no short. There's no shortage of content out there that is either you know ten ways to do this or seven ways to do that, and you see it in, you know, you see it in major, you know, publications now. I mean, it seems like a technique that a lot of writers, even at, at you know, commercially at the top of the food chain, um, you know, use where you know you wouldn't think, you know, twenty years ago you would not think that you know Newsweek or um, you know, or somebody like that would, would link to that kind link to that, you know, sort of technique of, of presenting content, but it's just the way people, uh, you know, people consume information these days. Yeah, it, it works. It still works. The list posts, you know, as a general concept still works. There's like you're saying, there's way more saturation of it now, but people still like things that are really easy to digest and even skim, like as opposed to read. Um, and those are the kind of things people share too, because they're the things people click on. So yeah, it still works, but 
um, specifically the mega list, like the list of 40 things or 80 things, those were kind of novel back in you know, 2010 or whatever. Mm-hmm. And now not so much, but you still see like the seven ways to do this, the seven things about this, that kind of thing. And they still do work. And I think he could still make a good list post. Um, most of them are kind of throwaways, but you know, it's a tried and true institution, the list post. Do you have anyone, I'm assuming the answer is yes, but I could be wrong. Do you have, you know, an inner circle of people who you circulate some, you know, work in process that you're maybe not sure of, or before it, before it gets published, what's your process for, you know, from the time that you start writing, uh, you know, you start writing a piece to the time that I see it, what happens in between those two points? Um, well, I don't, nobody else is involved. I don't let anybody look at what I'm writing before it's published. Like I have a friend who I trust a lot who will proofread for me when it's, when I'm just ready to put it online sometimes, but that's it. Um, the process, it kind of has changed over time, but basically I will, you know, at some point, usually I'm in the shower or someplace where it's hard to write something down and I will have an idea. I'll write down a lead about it. And sometimes I'll spend half an hour just writing all my thoughts about it. And then later when it's time to start my blog post for the week, I'll look through what I have in my short list of these little ideas and I'll free write on the idea. I'll just write, sometimes I'll even type out what I want to say about blank and then just start typing my thoughts, not attempting to write anything readable, but just, you know, what do I actually think about this? What am I trying to say? And then after I've done that, I will sit down and start from the beginning and try and write something readable. Once I get to the end, then I'm I'm just constantly editing all the way through. It's kind of messy. I wouldn't recommend doing it this way, but this is how I do it. Um, Start at the beginning. I try and get to a point at the end. And then after that, I try and shorten it and improve it. And then I publish it. And so most posts take like 10 or 12 hours now, like, the, the time I put into a post has really increased over time. I thought I'd get better at, you know, spending less time, but at the beginning it was about four to six hours and now it's like 10 or 12 hours. Sometimes it's just way too much, but. Well, do you, do you find sense. that with, I mean, I found this with uh, presenting information, you know, like public speaking and, and trying to engage people verbally. It seems to me that people's attention spans definitely are shrinking. So do, yeah. do you agree? Would you agree with that? Do you think, or I think so? Yeah. Um, there, and I even notice it in myself. Like my articles are, I try not to let them go above 1300 words. And if I can, I'll keep it under a thousand, but I don't often do that. But even myself, when I'm looking through the internet, I really would rather read a nice, short, concise article than one as long as the ones I produce. So I really understand that desire to like, read something more quickly and not have to do as much work, go through as many words or paragraphs to get the point. Um, I think our attention spans are kind of shrinking. Like we absorb more content that is more superficial maybe, but there's still a zillion people out there who will read a 2000 word article if it's good. So I, I kind of don't worry about catering to the, the more superficial fringes anymore. And I just, if it takes me that long to make the point, then that's just how long it takes me. And I have, haven't been short for readers. So, um, 
that's I just don't worry about it, I guess. Well, that well, I was going to that's was my next question and because it seems to me that um you know, there's this in terms of, you know, length of articles, particularly like in my other one of my 18 jobs that I have, um, when I write things for my law practice, you know, they have to be, you know, five, six hundred words at the longest. Generally, if it's if it's a publication of sort of general circulation where there are non lawyers reading it, you really have to get to the point quickly i know that's a much different animal than what you do but i was curious you know the shorter you have to make a piece the longer the the more difficult it is it's hard to convey what you want to say in a shorter period of time so um 10 or 12 hours on a on a 1300 word piece does not shock me it's not it's not easy to condense everything down and still convey the full weight of what you're trying to do yeah it's it is hard and I do I am really consciously working on making them shorter because I I really do think my best ones tend to be the shorter ones because everyone does like regardless of what the media the format the genre I guess of what you're writing is um, shorter is better if you can convey the same thing in fewer words that is just better writing so I am slowly working at making them shorter and shorter they used to be 1600 words on average and now they're you know 12 something but that it is i think just it is um by definition better if you can say the same thing in fewer words well and especially with with the content of your posts where you know i think people are looking for an answer you know in in terms of you know how i'm in a situation Maybe the situation's not good. How should I process this information? And then you read something like this will never happen again, which uh, is not a long post, but it's got that one kernel in there that really hits you over the head. You go, geez, you know, why didn't I, you know, why couldn't I have seen that before? So I think the shorter it is, the more, uh, the more effective it can be. Yeah, I think so. Like I try and, just have one point I'm trying to make, like just like a point that could be boiled down into a sentence. And often I'll even write when I'm writing at the bottom, I'll type bottom line is, and then a sentence that I'm trying to get to, but you can't just say the one sentence, you have to set it up and you have to make supporting points. But, um, yeah, I think all you're really saying is like in the best writing, the best articles is just one thing and using as few words you can to set up, set that up so that it's believable when you, do deliver that bottom line. Who who were some authors that influenced you? Um, authors? Or do you mean bloggers or like any writers? And, well, in in any you know whether it's it's whether it's fiction or nonfiction or or newspaper writers or what have you. Um, I'm a big fan of Kurt Vonnegut. Um, all of my I don't know if they're I guess they're influences. I but they're mainly fiction authors and I just don't really write fiction, but I like, like my favorite novels are, uh, East of Eden by Steinbeck, um, Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte, Les Miserables by Victor Hugo. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't have like a strict list of 
authors, I'll, I'll switch back and forth between nonfiction and fiction. Um, it's hard to, I don't know how to answer that question. My influence. <laughs> well, it's well, a lot of the classics. I mean, I, I think there's, um, you know, anybody that goes to school, you know, in North America probably has sort of a core, you know, a core of, of, of English, uh, you know, authors that, that they see in school, whether it's high school or college or, or whatever. Um, and I was just, was just curious, you know, given your ability to adapt to writing in a short format, um, which really is unique and I can't stress enough. I, you know, I, at least my personal view is, uh, you know, writing a good short story is almost impossible. It's really, really, really tough. I think if you give somebody some space and, and say, okay, you have an unlimited, as you do with the web, I mean, you could have a point and it might take you 3,500 words to get to what you're trying to say, but to try to do that in a third of the space, um, you know, is, is really elusive, I guess is how I would put it. Yeah. Well, as you were talking, I remembered two like modern influences that I have. Um, I read a lot of the New Yorker, New Yorker magazine. Mm -hmm. I think pretty much anyone on their staff, I just, they're very good. They're, I mean, they have word count limits and things like that. And so, they are a big non uh, nonfiction influence on me. I just I think it's fantastic writing. Um, and Alain de Botton, the uh, author and philosopher, he's like everyone is familiar with him, but not everyone remembers his name. But he's a uh, he's a Swiss-born, English-raised philosopher and writer. He has a YouTube channel called the School of Life, which is also a actual real life institution where they have it's like a secular, he was trying to make a, uh, secular answer to religious institutions for, for atheists and secular people and called it the school of life. So he writes tons of books, uh, religion for atheists, um, how Proust can change your life, the art of travel because he's a big influence on me just the way mainly topically, like not how he writes, but the, the things that he talks about. Do you get a chance to, to travel much since you can, so I assume you can manage the site remote from anywhere in the world. Do you get a chance to travel much or? Yeah, I do now. Um, my initial dream, like when I, in 2009, when I was just thinking about blogging, you would see, and you still see it, a lot of those images of like a laptop in a hammock or in a beach chair or something like that, like work remotely. It was, it was a real dream of mine to be able to work and travel at the same time because I always love traveling. Um, and I can actually do that now, but I find that when I'm traveling, I don't want to work. And when I'm working, I can't really travel. So I can do one <laughs> at a time, but I do take a lot of right. breaks from my work to, to travel. Yeah. One of the, uh, one of the posts of yours that I had stumbled across right before Labor Day was, um, a piece that you had that was published on businessinsider.com about the true purpose of the 40 hour work week, um, which, which I had sent around to a few of my, you know, a uh, few of my contacts to get their attention on, on something. But, um, for, for those of, I don't know if you can recall, I mean, I know you've, your, your output is, is pretty high and, you know, do you, do you remember that post? Oh Yeah. Yeah, that one, it's called Your Lifestyle Has Already Been Designed. 
Um, and it really is, I'm sure it is the most popular post I've ever written by now. It just, it went viral several times over. Um, and I like the ideas behind it, but I have a lot of misgivings about it because the main point was just that the, the standard mode of working leaves us really tired and really needy for indulgences and consumer products. And it kind of soaks up all of our time and money just recovering from working jobs that we don't like. So that was the point. But I, I did make that point about the, the real purpose of the eight hour workday, the 40 hour work week. And some um, readers have pointed out to me that I kind of misrepresented the history of the development of the 40 hour work week because I was just kind of philosophizing about it. The 40 hour work week was like a compromise down from the insane work hours of the industrial revolution where you had like eight year olds shoveling coal for 14 hours a day. So it was kind of a victory and I was sort of framing it as a, as this oppressive force. And I think it's kind of both, but I have misgivings about it because I didn't acknowledge that, that part of its history. But yeah, it has been hugely successful post. It still goes viral again and again. Yeah. It's, I, it's, I often, sorry. No, I'm sorry. You please, you go. I was just going to say, I often measure, it's hard to measure the success of a post because what, what numbers do you go by or, you know, is it how happy you are with it or how many shares it gets? But I often find myself measuring it by Facebook likes. And, uh, when I write a post and I get 500, I'm happy. I feel like it's been well received 500, uh, likes on Facebook, but this one has, it's over 150,000 by now. So that's like the difference in scale between how well it has done compared to you know the average post so it is just it's been completely huge um but yeah pretty much everything i write i have some misgivings about <laughs> well i mean however the history of that topic evolved i think a lot of clearly a lot of people agree with the effect that you know working a dead-end job or working a job you don't like you know has in terms of you know time i think as you get older, you realize time outweighs money in terms of importance. Uh, you know, you can always make more money later, but you can't, you lose time every day. Um, and uh, there's no, I mean, it's not, it, it shouldn't be a surprise that that's successful. It was, it was well-written and, and in your, in your own style, um, you kind of unveil the point in a very unexpected way. So it shouldn't be a surprise that that was um, so that was so popular. Um, well, David, it's been a pleasure speaking with you, and I, I do hope we can do this again at some point for maybe a, a part two because you know there's lots of things to talk about consumerism and you know its effect on people's well being, and uh, I I would love the opportunity to maybe do this again sometime. Sure, I'd love to. Okay, well. We will link to raptitude.com in the show notes on creativeconfidential.net on the podcast's webpage. And everybody should check out David Kane on, on the web, on Twitter. You're, you're everywhere. You're on Facebook, right? 
Yeah, I'm on all of the uh, all the things on the social media. All of the things. We are on all of the things. So, uh, David, thanks again. It's it's really been a pleasure and uh, really appreciate your time. Thanks a lot, Brian. This was fun. Thanks for listening to Creative Confidential with Brian Tuck. To have Brian consult for your arts organization or to book Brian for public speaking engagements or personal coaching sessions, send an email to brian at creativeconfidential.net. That's B-R-Y-A-N at creativeconfidential.net. To get future episodes automatically, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or visit us on the web at creativeconfidential.net. This has been a Steve Mittman social media creation. Creation. Steve Mittman social media.com.